As most of you will know, if you're a regular part of the, the church, during summer we, we kind of go into tourist mode, and we usually like doing tourist series. Uh, I used to do stuff in history of Christianity in Scotland, uh, but it got mixed reviews, so uh, some people loved it, some people weren't so sure. So uh, we thought this year we'd just be safe, and we're going to study Nehemiah for the next six weeks uh, uh, for, for this duration. And uh, it's, it's partly also what God's continuing to say to us. As, as we look at a kind of process of restoration over the next couple of years, I was saying after uh, all that we've experienced, it would take a year to find out where we were and then two years to start to see restoration. And, and we're in that process of restoration. Part of that, by the way, is getting volunteers. Our, all, our, all our volunteer teams are pretty exhausted or uh, fairly low. There is nowhere from Lifeway uh, through to those serving coffee that we have an abundance of volunteers or resource. And so we need people to kind of volunteer and get involved. So one of the things is coffee after the summer services. Uh, we, we just need people to put on the coffee. Uh, and we're not going to run lunch, but we're going to run coffee after the services. And so if you're around and you want to say, hey, I can do that, and we'll, we'll give you the training. I could even teach you, so that says it's very easy. And, uh, but, but, you know, we just really help out. So, so it just means we can have a cup of coffee after we finish and recover from my sermons. And um, so, so please do that uh, as we go in. And we've got a various summer program, and I'll mention some of it as we go through this. So Book of Nehemiah, and we're going to work our way through parts of Nehemiah. And, and explore this book. This book is often interpreted and seen to be about restoration, and it is about a restoration. It is about the exiles returning. What happened in 586 BCE was Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was effectively burnt to the ground. Large portions of the population were deported, and after a period of approximately 70 years, they find themselves under the Persian regime, modern-day Iran. And under that regime, uh, a king called Cyrus decided that he would restore the temples of various indigenous peoples, including the temple in Jerusalem. And so he authorized a group to return. And a guy called Zerubbabel, who was actually a descendant of David, a member of the ex-royal family that had been deposed in 586, he returned to Jerusalem to start work on the temple. And uh, we, we discover that something went wrong with that. Uh, there, there is a suggestion that he actually started to make the claim that he was the Messiah, the, the high priest king who was going to restore the fortunes of the, the, the Jews, and they were going to go on and conquer the world. And, and it's actually thought that Psalm 2, it might surprise you, but you know Psalm 2, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 2 might actually be written about King Darius, a Persian king, who's just saying, I'm the Messiah, no one messes with me. That's why it kind of refers to getting smashed to pieces at the end of Psalm 2. Go home and read it. Anyway, something went wrong, and the work in the temple stopped, and then there was a period where nothing happened. And then, probably, Nehemiah comes on board, and he starts to try and restore the walls because he hears that there's a problem. And then after that, Nehemiah fails, and then after that comes Ezra. You'll know that the dating of this is all slightly different from what you see 
in your Old Testaments. Okay? And uh, so not to confuse you too much, but Ezra and Nehemiah were a single book. And they were written as scrolls, okay? There was probably three scrolls. A scroll that dealt with Zerubbabel, a scroll that dealt with Nehemiah, and a scroll, scroll that dealt with Ezra. And basically what happened was the Ezra scroll got put before the Nehemiah scroll. And uh, just so you know, I'm not making this up. A uh, good Baptist Old Testament theologian called H.H. H. Rowley, he, he documents this fairly thoroughly. It, it got confused. And what happened was the dating got mixed up because of the kings that are mentioned, Dario and Arsaces. And, uh, and so what we actually have is we have probably have Zerubbabel, we have Nehemiah, and then we have Ezra. And we have these three cycles. And, and, and the story of each one of these is uh, there's a challenge of restoration. The restoration begins under a leader, and then there is a failure. And uh, the failure gets less. Zerubbabel is a complete disaster. Uh, Nehemiah... Okay, but Ezra slightly better, but still none of them actually concluding and completing. And actually, there's a kind of spiritual movement. They start with a physical temple, then they start with the city of Jer then Nehemiah with the city of Jerusalem, and then Ezra with the law. There, there's a kind of shift going on from the temple to the word and, and preparing for what was to become Judaism in the form of the Pharisees and various other groups, where the emphasis was on the word rather than physical temples or even the city of Jerusalem. So there was the shift. And, and, and people will say that there was a preparation for the true Messiah to come and for the true realization to come in Jesus. So that's kind of a, a bit of the, the context or the background to Nehemiah. Now, people often come to the book of Nehemiah. They kind of lift it out of that cycle of restoration and failure that, that we see throughout the three phases, and, and they turn it into a kind of leadership manual, a version of the secret of my success. And uh, I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any time, you will have heard a, a series of Nehemiah that says, this is going to tell you how to become the best leader you possibly can be. And uh, if you look on Amazon, these are some titles of books. Nehemiah, Becoming a Godly Leader. Revive Us Again, A Study of Ezra and Nehemiah. Rebuilding the Walls, Lessons in Leadership from Nehemiah. Ezra, A Biblical Model for Restoration. The Nehemiah Factor, 16 Vital Keys to Living Like a Missional Leader. That sounds fun. Anyway, uh, you get the gist. <laughs> the truth is, that's actually not what happens in the book of Nehemiah. The, the, the book of Nehemiah is not a book about the secret of my success. If you read it, you'll actually see that in chapters 8 through 10, Ezra and Nehemiah call the people together, and, and, and they think God's going to do a new thing, and they think it's the start of this new thing. And actually, chapters 11 through 13, you see Nehemiah, a broken man, weeping over the failure of his mission and his leadership and the brokenness of the people of God. You know, it's not a secret of my success story. It's actually about the obstacles that people put in the way of God working. And, and, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about the obstacles that need to be removed in order for us, can we move to the next slide, in order for us to realize that God 
the work is going to happen. And so it's kind of a reality check. The stories of Ezra and Nehemiah tell a realistic story of people who are zealous to help others see the world and God in a new way. They're full of passion and love for God and do everything in their power to lead the Israelites into a new era of devotion to their God. And it doesn't work. The story ends with Nehemiah in angry tears berating the Israelites for violating the covenant commands of the Lord. Why? Because the people never dealt with the obstacles. And, and so Nehemiah and Ezra are a challenge to deal with the obstacles in our lives that inhibit the work of God and God doing his work. You know, God requires us to get out of the way. You know, that's what God requires. God requires us to get out of the way that, so that he can work. And often our attitudes, often the, the selfishness, often our egotism, often our own pride and arrogance stops the work of God because we put these obstacles in his way. And so we end up with the promise of something new, the promise of a new potential, and the realization of disappointment where we fail to see God work. You see, Nehemiah is not about what we can build. It's not about how a dynamic leader can bring about success. It is actually about what God can do. It's not about the temple or the walls, but the work of God. David Bevington last week in his sermon quoted William Carey, the founder of the BMS. And where it, William Carey said this, and it was quoted last week, expect great things and attempt great things. What Kerry was saying is, we act, can we go to the next slide, sorry, we act because God acts. You see, we act and we do, not to do stuff in our own efforts, but we prepare the way for God to act. And we have confidence to prepare the way for God to act because God will act. You see, the thing is, if we deal with the obstacles, if we deal with the stuff in our lives, if we deal with the stuff in our church, then we make a highway for God to work. I don't know if you've ever had a blockage. Um, my advice, by the way, if you're under 18 at the moment, uh, with the advent of AI, is become a plumber rather than anything else, okay? Because there's a future in plumbing, but not much else with AI. But anyway, that's just a free tip. But <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a blockage. And, uh, and you know, you turn on your, your, your tap, and there's like a little drip. And it's either because there's an air pocket or there's something stuck. And it limits what can happen. And it's that blockage that stops it. And you have to, you know, it's very exciting when you remove the air pocket or whatever, and suddenly you have this flow of water. Well, it's like that with the people of God. When we remove the obstacles, the things in our life that stop God working, we experience this amazing flow that God has. You know, the reason that we don't see lots of people becoming Christians the reasons that we don't see our church full, and you know, I know there's sociological reasons and psychological reasons and all that, but you know the principal reason? It's not because God can't work. It's because we stop God working with the obstacles in our lives. 
Once somebody said to me, the work of God and what we do is often like farmers. And uh, I was doing some gardening yesterday, which is a big first for me. <laughs> but you know, it's amazing. Things grow everywhere <laughs> and usually not where you want them to grow. And, uh, but but you, you, you as the gardener, prepare the ground. You can't cause the growth. The growth is a miracle. It's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing. Uh, I was talking to a lady in a shop, and I was telling her I was about to cut down dandelions. And she was telling me I shouldn't because they're really good for the environment and all that, and how cruel I am, and an eco-terrorist, and things like that. <laughs> Interesting conversation over a pint of milk. But, anyway, <laughs> but, but she kind of has a point. But as a gardener, you prepare the way for the growth and the life. And, you know, we have to get rid of the stones. We have to dig up the soil. We have to prepare the ground for God's work so that God can work. And so Nehemiah chapter 1 is about the preparation for God to work. Nehemiah sees and he recognizes as he hears about Jerusalem and what is happening that there is a desperate need for an intervention. And Nehemiah doesn't go, I'll sort it. You know, I'm the guy. I've got the skills. I've got the insight. I know exactly what needs to happen here. I'm going to fix it. Nehemiah doesn't start there in chapter 1. He hears about it and he understands unless God acts, Nothing is going to happen for Jerusalem. And so he invites God to act. How does he do that? He prays and he fasts. He says, God, I want you to work in this situation. And he begins to deal with the crisis that confronts him. We see that crisis because we're told the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates had been burned with fire. Now, it wasn't just about putting walls up and gates up. Walls and gates were essential to create a safe space for a community to grow. And so he understood that Jerusalem would never flourish, would never grow. There would never be a realization of the restoration of God's people unless the things that were necessary for that restoration were put in place. And he begins with prayer. He doesn't begin by racing to sort it. He doesn't begin by rushing off thinking, I can resolve all this. He begins with prayer and fasting, and he cries out to God because he knows God is concerned about this. And you'll see in verse 5, he begins by recognizing who God is. He said, Lord, the God of heaven. When they talk about the God of heaven, it's the idea of the God who controls everything. There was a belief that what happened in the heavens, what happened in the stars, controlled what happened on earth. And what he's doing is he's blowing that out of the water and saying, God is behind all of what happens in the heavens. God is the one who is in control. And so he comes to him and says, God, you're the one who is in control. You're great and you're awesome. You keep your covenant of love with those who love you and keep your commandments. He affirms who his God is. You see, he understands that God wants to work. Do we believe that God wants to work in 2023? Do we believe that God wants to work through us? Do we believe that God can meet the challenges that we're seeing in our society at the moment? Or do you think our future is just dissipating? You know, the walls are broken down. The gates aren't there. There's no safe space for growth and flourishing within the church of God, within Scotland? Or do we believe God is a God who wants to work? 
Nehemiah says, God, help me understand that you are a God who wants to work. And then he begins to address the obstacles in his life. He begins to confess his sins. We see verse 7, or rather verse 6, the second half of verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my family, have committed against you. You see, he understands that the obstacles that are in God's way aren't just his obstacles, they're all of our obstacles. Now, this might sound strange, but the issues that Scotland has, and by the way, we have a few issues. Um, I know I better not go there, right? <laughs> Told not to say anything controversial. So, so we, we need to see that the obstacles that we have in our nation are our obstacles. You know, the corruption that we have in our land is our corruption. The immorality that we have in our land is our immorality. The distortions that we have and the brokenness that we have is our brokenness. Church is not a place where we sit and we go, I'm glad you're all right and I'm all right and we're fine. And we sit isolated from our society. No, we're part of that society and we have to own the issues of our society and come and say, God, these are obstacles to your work. God, these are obstacles to what you want to do in the lives of individuals, in the life of our community, in the life of our nation, in the life of our churches. So God, we cry out and we confess on behalf of our nation these sins. When was the last time you confessed the sins of our nation? And I don't mean, you know, sneering at the political party that you don't support and you know, their, their fortunes or not. I mean, when you've stood there and said, God, we are culpable as part of this nation. We are culpable of the things that we have seen, either through our omissions or commissions, what we've done. You see, this is how the work of God begins as we begin to ask and pray for God to remove the things. Nehemiah prays, Myself and my family, my father's family have committed sins against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. And, and then he just goes on to say, Lord, we understand the principle. It's not difficult. It says, if you are faithful to God and you follow his instructions and his commandments, you will know blessing. If you are unfaithful to God and you reject his principles for living and life, then you will know hardship and problems. In fact, usually there's a direct correlation. I, again, I might suggest our society reflects this. You know, does our society conform to the principles that God has laid down for our lives and for communities? Does it? What do you think? I'll take a vote. It's fairly obvious it doesn't. Is in our society a happy, well-adjusted, thriving environment? Is it the kind of world that you want to bring your children into, your grandchildren into? It's not. There's a correlation. And again, it's God's people. We need to explain this to people. That faithfulness to God and to his word is a route to blessing, unfaithfulness to God and his word, despite how you package it and promote it, 
is a route to brokenness and loss and ultimately judgment. It's that simple. Nehemiah gets it and he prays. And, and, and again, he doesn't understand. And then the third thing he says in verse 11 is he, he prays and he says, God, create for me an opportunity. We're told at the end of the chapter that he was a cupboy error to the king, and which meant that he was one of the high up civil servants of the Persian Empire. And he had access to the imperial power. And, 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 you know, he couldn't just walk up to him and say, hey, can you give me a job? I'd love, I'd love to go and look after Judah. Is it possible? He, he had to have that access and opportunity created. And so he confesses his sins, and then he says, God, give me an opportunity to be used by you. You know, in our society, that has to be our prayer. You know, as we go forward, even into the summer, I know we're all going on holiday, but it has to be the prayer. God, use me. You know, I don't, I don't know how you can use me, but give me opportunity. Give me opportunity to share my faith. Give me opportunity to be an influence. You know, you know we're going to be doing calling in the new year, in, the, in the, the autumn, and looking at what it means to be calling. You know, we have people in our church that are in significant positions of influence. And it's like, God, give me opportunity to be an influence. God, give me an opportunity to minister and be part of that flow of the water of life as we remove the obstacles that hinder your work and what you desire for our nation. Let's be a people who are people of prayer. You know, we have a 9.30 prayer meeting. And I love it. And I would encourage you to come along occasionally. Don't come along every week, but, you know, make an effort every so often. See if everybody did this. It would be brilliant. Just once in three weeks or four weeks, come along to the 9.30 prayer meeting and meet with us and share. It's great. It's a great time of fellowship and community. We're going to have a prayer meeting throughout the, the summer and Tuesday nights where we're going to be waiting on God and praying and maybe confessing on behalf of the nation and saying, God, create opportunities for us as we go forward. Come and be part of that. Because if we really want to see things change, we want to see things change in our lives, want to see things change in our church, want to see things change in our society, we need to deal with the obstacles and become open to what God wants to do. And you do that through prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah. I thank you that when confronted with a situation, he understood that he could not resolve it. He understood that he could not deal with situations in his own strength. He understood how important it was to pray and remove the obstacles to your work and to ask for opportunities to minister your grace to others. Lord, I pray in our lives that you would deal with the obstacles that you would deal with the obstacles in our society and our church, that we would truly be ministers of your grace. God, give us those opportunities to be agents of transformation. We ask this in your name. Amen.